Hello and welcome to today's episode of HemeCast. I'm your host, Luke Pembroke, Director of Community Engagement at HemeNet. And today we'll be exploring the complex and often overlooked topic of ageing and haemophilia. Due to relatively recent improvements in treatment and care in many parts of the world, those living with bleeding disorders now have a near to normal life expectancy. We are lucky enough to be getting old. But this raises important questions about how ageing affects the health and quality of life for people with haemophilia. Are they at greater risk of developing age-related health conditions? How can they manage the daily challenges of living with haemophilia as they get older? And what steps can be taken to ensure that they continue to live healthy, fulfilling and independent lives? Our guests on this episode are two brilliant community advocates with an expert interest in all things ageing and haemophilia. So welcome to William McKeon and Randy Curtis. And to begin with, I wanted to just give you both a chance to introduce yourselves, uh, tell us who you are, your background and your connection to the world of bleeding disorders. I guess as we're talking ageing, age before beauty, Randy, would you like to go first? Ah, Okay, so my name is Randall Curtis and in the US I call myself Randy and all my friends do, but it refers to something different in the UK. So I go by my given name of Randall. And I, when I say, hey, I'm Randy, they say they look at me a bit odd. So I'm 68 years old. I was born with severe hemophilia back in the days when all we had was ice and aspirin. And I've survived all these slings and arrows. And I just recently got over prostate cancer because that's one of the, one of the other joys that comes with aging as an old. So my background is I have a degree in genetics and a degree in computer information systems. And I spent most of my life involved with collecting data on people with hemophilia. And now the Willebrand disease and sickle cell disease, but my true passion is identifying the cost of care in hemophilia and using that information to advocate for better. And I think that's, I think that can sums up where I am. Awesome. And well, congratulations for the good medical news that you received recently. I'm happy to hear it, man. William, if you'd like to go next. Well, if if Randy's bringing the age, hopefully I'm bringing the beauty, but maybe it's better this as a podcast. I am, my name is William McKeown. I am 31 and I'm patient with severe hemophilia. I'm from Northern Ireland. I've been lucky enough to grow up in the West in a time where treatment has been quite good throughout my life. So luckily I don't live with a lot of disability as a consequence of my hemophilia, but I'm conscious that a lot of a lot of people do. And we as communities still have an awful lot of work to do. Why so many 31? I growing old with hemophilia is something I'm very interested in. So I work as a geriatrician. So that's a doctor that specializes in older people's medicine and in aging and It's very exciting to be here today because this, I think, is one of the big frontiers that we have not yet cracked in bleeding disorders. And it's something that I'm very vocal about because I aspire to age well. And there's some things that we need to get in place as a community in order for people like you and me look to do that over the coming decade. So it's great to be here today. Totally agree. And and thank you very much both for taking the time out of your days and especially Randy getting up super early in the morning on the West Coast. I appreciate it. Going back to what you just said, actually, William, that this topic of aging is uncharted territory in a lot of ways. And as we're going to be talking about aging in the context of haemophilia and bleeding disorders, I think it's really easy to forget why this is 
a relatively recent hot topic of discussion in the community. And so, Randy, it reminds me, actually, I remember seeing a piece on you a couple of years ago, and it was titled Baby Boomers with Haemophilia Didn't Expect to Grow Old. If you could give us an insight into why this idea of aging with haemophilia is sadly only relatively recent and become you know, a point of consideration due to the history of haemophilia as a condition and the treatments. I was growing up in the 50s and 60s. It was common that we were not going to live past 13. In fact, my physician told, my hematologist told my mother that one time when I came in with a bleed and she, and he said, they're going to do that. They're going to bleed. And I said, you know, they don't really make it much past 13. I've told this story on many other occasions, but I went back to school the next day and I was having some problems in, in math. And I told the teacher, well, you know, I don't really have to learn this because I'm going to be dead. And that, that didn't play very well. And since my dad Imagine. taught in the same school district, that, that information got to him before I got home. And we had a very long discussion that I was, really, was not going to discuss this anymore. But this was very common amongst all the guys that, that the older folks that I grew up with, that I've talked to now. And many of them had to go to special schools, schools for special children. I was able to go to public school because my dad taught in the school district and he made special dispensation. But I had to go to school in a wheelchair and spend all of my recesses in the office. Uh, so there were a bunch of guys that didn't make it, right? And then cryo came along and then factor came along. And then there was this golden age where everybody was going to... There we go. She had summer camps and everybody was doing well. And then HIV came and wiped out another, wiped out 80% of us. Um, but I remember growing up when I, when I was in my 20s, I was talking to some of these older guys because there were a few of them around. And so, what's the secret to growing old? And one of his advice was stay out of the hospital. It's just they try and kill you in there. And he says, it's not on purpose, but they just don't know what they're doing. Mm. And they will make bad decisions and cause you pain and suffering to stay the hell out of the hospital. So I took that to heart and I tried to stay out of the hospital. I think the other wave of loss came in the like the 2010, 2012, 2014, when all the when the the 10 to 15% of us that were left, we got the results of 40 years of hepatitis C came to visit us. And we lost a lot of guys before the new hepatitis C meds came in. I know that at least in one center, they lost 30% of who was left in, during that time period. So what you left with, I think in the U.S. last data I saw from the CDC, had about 2% of us over 65. So, so once again, this whole concept of having a population of aging people with hemophilia to deal with just wasn't an issue. But I think Will can tell you that we're all concerned that the young blokes like you guys are going to age into this category and the healthcare system really isn't set up to deal with us, right? We are in an anomaly right now, but there's going to be a flood of you and we need to set the stage for that to happen. I think that's roughly my spiel. Yeah. And I would build on what Randy said. We can't underestimate the sheer speed of change in Randy's lifetime. The life expectancy for somebody with severe hemophilia has gone from 13 to nearly normal. So the change of pace has been unbelievable. And as you just said, Randy, the perception was 50 years ago, the doctors didn't know what they were doing. And unless we work out what growing old with hemophilia looks like and have a good evidence base for treating people with hemophilia, 
I think we could be soon asking ourselves again, why don't they know what they're doing? So it is, it's coming quickly. It's coming quickly. There are a tsunami of hemophiliacs coming. What an image. And we're going to get washed away if we don't know what managing the common problems of aging. And we're going to come on to talk about that, I'm sure, are. Totally agree. It is recognizing that there's a whole load of people about to come from upstream and we don't have the uh, flood protection in place, if you like, at the moment. And with all of the developments in treatment and care, having improved it, like you say, the life expectancy is near normal. There is still that kind of misunderstanding. One of the questions I get from a lot of people, you know, they've always sort of asked, oh, so what is the life expectancy for someone with haemophilia? And I'm very fortunate to say pretty much near normal. Uh, if you're born today or when I was, when you get access to good treatment, I always have to preface that's in a developed country, of course. We could go on for ages about the life expectancy in countries where they don't have access to treatments. But there are going to be all of these new problems that we haven't seen in a haemophilia population before. And it is somewhat concerning that perhaps we're not set up for it. And I think the difficulty lies in the fact that, as you said, Randy, there's not a big population of these people in the aging category left for us to learn from. And I know yourself, you really focused on this aging topic and it would be great to get an understanding of some of the work and efforts you've made to bring this further up on the agenda and make people pay attention to the the geezers coming downstream. Well, I, I think it, it, it goes back to the whole thing with hemophilia is that if you don't take care of us, then we cost a lot of money. And I think that I use that as kind of like the stick to beat the uh, policymakers into, into line. Because if you take care of me, I can motor through and find a retirement home and live a, a normal life. If I, get a, if I get a very bad bleeding episode or there's some other complication with heart disease or kidney disease or any number of the other comorbidities of hemophilia, I'm really expensive. I am really expensive. And, and that's more of an issue in the U.S. than it is in the U.K. Not that we're any less expensive in the U.K., but the system is not set up to be concerned about it. There's the alarm isn't raised. It's just a drain on the general populate, general bucket of money. Uh, I'll let Will talk about that. I kind of wanted to walk it back a step because I think if we're going to say we need to solve the problem of hemophilia and aging, I think we first have to ask ourselves, what do we actually want and what is aging well with haemophilia and how does it look? And certainly I work with older people every day as a geriatrician. and I, I do feel I get a sense from talking to people who are growing old, who are in their 80s, who are in their 90s, what's important to aging well. And one of the biggest things that people say to me time and time again is that they want to stay independent. They want to be able to do what they want when they want. They want to be able to maintain relationships with their loved ones and they want to have a valuable role in their community. And so whenever we uncover or strive towards when it comes to aging well with haemophilia, I think has to be directed towards maintaining that independence. And that's something that haemophilia has historically taken away from people by crippling, crippling them with you, or it's just forced them to stay in their house or it's forced them to avoid activities that were dangerous. So 
I think moving forward, as we work out what it is to age with hemophilia, I think we need to direct our efforts towards ensuring people, as they grow older with bleeding disorder, can maintain their independence and live their lives to the full. So getting back to the staying in-house and staying uh, being kind of housebound, I know that some of the other earlier works I did with aging, actually it's a global project, fear of falling was really high on the list. And I don't really know how to, you can have assistive devices to help you not fall down. But then I will tell you that in my research in the US, these guys don't like to use assistive devices. It's a very independent, you know, I, I, you know like curmudgeonly, you know, fiercely independent thing. I, I, the group that we studied in the US, the guys that were 50, 50 and older tended not to go into the hospital tended not to call when they were in pain, tended to kind of want to tough it out. But under between 40 and 40, 40 and 50, they complained about pain a lot. They went to the hospital a lot. They made a lot of phone calls. So they had a little different expectation of the healthcare system than the older guys. The older guys didn't expect it to be there. And if it was there, it would interfere with their lives. So we've got to get to, once again, it's how we deal with the, what I call the really old guys over 60 and those unders, un, an under 50 that 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 have some expectation of a normal life, of independence, of good care. Absolutely. I think that idea of independence is really the crux of it because you have this population now coming through that have had pretty good treatment for the most part, maybe don't have anywhere near as many issues compared to most people from the, the older generation who didn't have access to good treatments and care. And so they're accustomed to living independently of their hemophilia. And this is kind of a little bit separate from it. But I remember when I went through gene therapy, I think one of the biggest difficulties was suddenly having my independence of my condition stripped away because I was suddenly so dependent on the healthcare team because I was going through something that I knew very little about and I didn't know how to handle. It was completely different. And I always say that losing that independence of controlling my hemophilia was really difficult. And I think of the potential of people to age and suddenly experience certain comorbidities and health issues that are part of getting older anyway, but could perhaps be exacerbated or made more complex due to their haemophilia. And suddenly they're back to being a kid again in a way. They're going to be very dependent on their healthcare providers and the healthcare system in a way that they've not been used to for a long time. I think it would be great if, uh, if you didn't mind going into that a bit, William, talking about what are some of the sort of common aging health-related issues? And perhaps with some of those common ones, how do you see them interfacing with haemophilia and perhaps adding a layer of complexity that maybe we've not quite thought about yet? So I think we'll probably get into talking about specific diseases and health problems later. But in terms of the common signs and symptoms people get, we have what we call the five frailty syndromes of growing older and growing frailer, and these are falls, immobility, incontinence, confusion, and susceptibility to side effects of medication. And it's quite clear to me that all of these things are a burden for anybody who's grown older, but for somebody with a bleeding disorder, there is an extra layer of difficulty. So if you are falling and if you have immobility, the risk of injury is significantly higher for you. Perhaps the risk of falling itself is higher from the beginning because 
you may be more likely to have joint issues and mobility problems. If you look at things like cognitive difficulties or confusion or dementia, if you're somebody who's a hemophiliac who's self-infusing medication and suddenly you have a significant cognitive problem, you're forgetting to take your medication, the complicated steps and process of taking that medication suddenly become unattainable for you. And so there, there are ways in which these common problems of aging have that extra complexity and extra difficulty for somebody with the bleeding disorder that we need to attune ourselves to and think ahead to. So, so I'd like to bring up something to address, addressing that. I've seen healthcare for aging and hemophilia in many different countries. In the US up until recently, you couldn't go into a retirement home because they wouldn't cover clotting factor. And so we had to have guys that lived in retirement homes and then their sons would come over and pick them up, take them out into the parking lot and infuse them and then bring them back in. Up until two years ago, that was the standard of care for anybody over 60 for aging and hemophilia. On the other hand, I've seen what they do in the Netherlands where they have these beautiful young women that are like eight foot tall that take these guys into the warm pool and exercise them back and forth and give them their infusions. They put ports in them. And let me tell you, those guys show up for this. So I, it, you, there's a spectrum here and I don't know where we can lead this, but I think the other, aside from these five frailty issues, there's the, just the common aging stuff. There's heart disease, there's diabetes, there's cancer, there's a bunch of these other things. And that takes us, once again, as you talked about it, Luke, that takes us out of our comfort zone. We got to go talk to somebody else. And this somebody else may not really know how to spell hemophilia correct. So that interplay between the hemophilia team and these other comorbidity teams has to be built. And I'm going to toss that back to Will. So, yeah. So, I mean, we know that there are the risk factors for developing things like stroke or heart attacks, so high blood pressure, obesity, often the rates of these things are higher in haemophilia. And yet, these conditions often don't occur as regularly because we have thinner blood. We can't form the clots that cause heart attacks or strokes. But that, that dynamic is rapidly changing. So mm. we are getting better and better at treating bleeding disorders. And so... There are guys who are on biospecific molecular antibodies who have 10% all the time. So they don't have the level of cardiovascular protection that somebody with severe hemophilia used to have. And so the decision about how to treat those things become more complicated. Usually you didn't treat these conditions with blood thinners and hemophilia because that would be the normal treatment. Because blood thinners and hemophiliac, that's crazy, right? Mm. Making somebody bleed even more with the hemophilia, that's crazy. But now if you're getting treated very well, you have a high trough level, your risk actually of clots has become a lot higher. And we have a very difficult balancing act now in the haemophilia population to negotiate as we decide how to treat things like heart attacks, strokes, peripheral vascular disease, atrial fibrillation. And I don't think we have a good evidence base for doing that yet. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think that they're, and I've heard stories of it, people out there now that are being prescribed blood thinners as part of their aging process. And that's just wild to think, right? Because it's so counterintuitive to how you'd treat haemophilia. But the fact it's becoming necessary in some people 
shows that aging population is growing. The issues we expect to see are becoming more frequent. And in a weird way, we're maybe becoming victims of our own success. But we shouldn't have to, right? We should have processes and plans in place for this inevitable aging population we're about to see. But if we're striving for normality of people with haemophilia, then we do already have the tools and understanding there in terms of how we treat older people with frailty problems. Just how do we map that onto this specific population of people? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. So on that question to both of you, I guess, what do you think should be the priorities for the community moving forwards from an advocacy perspective and a policy perspective? What do you think we need to be doing in the bleeding disorders community to set ourselves up better for this aging population that will be here quicker than we think? Well, also, because 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 we've already started out, we're ahead of the game. You know, a, a guy with severe hemophilia at the age of 60 has the body of an 80-year-old. So we're, we're aging quicker than we think. I, the issues with kind of guiding care, I've talked to a number of physicians in the U.S., and now I've talked to Will and Dr. Shapiro in the U.K. Part of it is, in a U.S. parlance, who's the quarterback? Are you the one guiding your care? Is the treatment center guiding your care or do you have a primary care person that's guiding your care? And I think the way to go forward is to actually have the primary care be your, your central point of contact for all these things because they are more familiar with that aging process. They're more familiar with, with referring you out to cardiology, to nephrology, to all the subspecialties that are required to do this. The point is they need to have that tether back to the HTC so that when they do refer you out for, for your diabetes care, that, that those oddities that come with hemophilia, that those are addressed and that they have the skill set needed to guide you down that path. Same with cardiology and the others. But, the, but once again, the really old guys don't want to do that right? They've been going to DHTC all their lives and they aren't going to go because they don't want to change what's always worked for them. I know. So I think what I hear is that probably two thirds of us would go somewhat willing to lead to a primary care physician if you can find one that wants to have you. So there's, there's that. And then um, there's probably a, a good percentage of them, particularly the older guys, that don't want to do this. And it's going to be up to the HTCs to guide that process to try and act as the primary care physician and refer out. Yeah, I have a big long list of things that I think are important for us as a community to be arguing for in this regard. And I kind of grip them in these three broad categories. One is legislation, one is getting the HTC right, and one is getting the evidence right as well. So you, we've already touched on the fact that it's very difficult for people in nursing homes to access proper care for haemophilia. I don't think that's something that should be a matter of debate. I think there should sim- it should be simply set in clinical guidelines and even in legislation that no matter where your place of dwelling is, whether it's your own home or whether it's institutional care in a residential or nursing home, you should have access to the treatment that you need for your haemophilia. This should not be up for debate. You should be able to get access to your prophylaxis or your emphasis app, or whatever it is, regardless of where you live. So I think we need to really pin that down urgently. But the second thing is getting 
the HTCs right. The premise of elderly care is that treatment is always best delivered by multidisciplinary teams. And I don't know how familiar that term is to people, but by a multidisciplinary team, lots of different health care, lots of different healthcare professionals with different perspectives coming together to form a team. So not just doctors and nurses, but also physios, occupational therapists, social workers, maybe dietitians, speech and language therapists, getting them all together in one team and treating all the facets that come together to cause ill health in old age. And right now, that's something that's very patchy in haemophilia care centres. So there's some centres in the United Kingdom have a physio, have an OT, have a psychologist, have a social worker. And there are some centres that barely have access to any of these. So that is something that is essential for taking care of older people. And we should be trying to make sure that every haemophilia treatment centre has physio access, has occupational therapy access, has social work access. I think the other thing that HTCs need to get right, and Randy, you touched on this, we need to have good links with other specialties. So, you know, I don't want to see a cardiologist who has only ever met one other person with hemophilia. That's That doesn't make me feel safe. That doesn't reassure me. We need to try and concentrate these skills in certain uh, specialists. So I think HTC should be pairing up with a specific cardiologist or a specific gastroenterologist and definitely with a geriatrician and really try and concentrate those skills and build those expertise in a small number of people. And then the final thing is getting evidence for how we look after conditions of aging because we don't have that. And I think there's a number of thoughts on how we do that. And maybe I could throw that back to you, Randy. Ah, are we talking Are we talking UK specific at this point? We're just talking about getting the evidence. Yeah, we need okay. the data, right? How do we do it? Okay, so that's, yes, that's my thing. So I think from the global perspective, it's through registries. And I think that the WFH registry, uh, I don't know how well it collects this extra data from the cardiology perspective and from the nephrology, the, the kidney perspective and cancer and all the other frailty stuff. I think we need to redefine the the data dictionary to add these components in there. But it's one thing to have a list and it's another thing to fill it. I don't know. Once again, once you go out to cardiology, how do you get that data back? Once you go out to these other things, how do you get that data back? I think all we can do at this point is maybe add a thing saying, yeah, they were referred to cardiology. If It's easier to collect data if you have a list, right? And you can check the boxes off. If we could identify the five top things that happen with a cardiovascular event, and then that might be a level of data collection we can expect from an HTC. If you leave a fill in the blank, you get bedlam. You get just a whole bunch of stuff that you can't really analyze. You can't say, oh, this percentage of people above this level have this problem and we need to address it. So I don't know how you would, I'm not familiar with how you collect data in the UK. I would imagine there's a registry. I don't know how you would change that. By and large, they are averse to change. But if you put the right amount of pressure on things, I think in in, in some extent, what you need to do is maybe do a, a subset, a couple of pilot projects in a couple of treatment centers that have the wherewithal to collect this kind of data. And perhaps if you can show that if the care isn't there, it's worse. And if you can show like one one disaster or a couple of disasters that are completely painful to get a good 
that get a good good press that people get rise people's attention, then you can use that to push the registry folks to change their act. So I don't know if that's valid, but that would be one way to go about it. I mean, it's a very interesting topic of debate, how we get this data. And there really are two ways you can go. It is the registries. And then there's our, let's do some specific studies looking at these aspects. And there's merits to both. Because these conditions are still very rare overall, I think registries are quite good for getting data quickly because you need to take that data from a big pool. How many hemophiliacs have had a heart attack? Not that many. So to get the numbers to juice anything, I think registries are quite good. But you're right, Randy. Technically doing these things is very difficult. In the UK, we have the National Hemophilia Database that's run by the UK Hemophilia Centre's director's organisation. And adding an extra piece of data to that record is very difficult. It's hard to do. So technically, it's very difficult. So then you've got the other side of things. You could do some specific studies. I know that the UK Hemophilia Centre Director's Organisation has a little subgroup, which is the Comorbidities Working Group. They're doing some fantastic work and they're trying to get together what's called an atrial fibrillation registry. So atrial fibrillation, it's an irregular heartbeat. It's very common in people when they get older. And in the general population, we give them all blood thinners because they're at high risk of stroke. But in hemophilia, we don't know what the risk versus benefit of doing that is. So mm. they're looking at doing a very specific registry for that. But it's not easy. It's not easy. But we really do need, we need to assess the problem first and work out what the scale of this is. And I personally think registries are the first initial step. And then we can start looking at individual studies to see what is the right way to go on, on a range of different conditions. Well, once again, getting that baseline, how many guys have atrial fibrillation? What's the target population that's at risk? And then as you collect this data over time, some of these guys will fall off the wagon and have a stroke or a heart attack or some other problem. And what you need, and this takes time, what you need to do is show that those guys that are managing their hypertension do better. And once you show that there's the population that takes their medicine does better than the population that doesn't take their medicine, then you can use that to push change. I think that it's incumbent upon the community to ask for this and to push for this and say, as the community say, who's looking at this? I'm worried about this. I'm getting older. Are you guys taking care of me? Are you guys ready for me? Because if we don't complain about it, there's going to be no movement. Absolutely. And when we think about registries and wider scales, I think that is something that's a big undertaking. It's a big task. But I think there's a lot of power in case studies as well. And we see a lot of case studies done in unique treatment situations. And personally, I don't think you see as many of those being done in aging comorbidity situations. And I don't even think these sort of case studies or comorbidity issues related to aging are high enough up on the agenda. I go to a lot of haemophilia conferences, right? And a lot of the time it feels like the agendas can be somewhat repetitive year to year. And in my mind, I can't really think of many I've been to where aging's been somewhat prioritized on the agenda. It just made me think about something you said earlier, William, when you said you wouldn't want to be seen by a cardiologist 
who'd only come across one person with haemophilia. And I remember hearing a story from someone in the community once they, they had to retire and they had to have triple bypass surgery. And you're like, oh my God, in someone with haemophilia. And it was a real mission for them to find someone, to find a cardi cardiologist who was willing to do it and assume that risk. And I think because there's not this base of knowledge and data, it really deters people from sort of assuming the risk of taking care of someone with haemophilia that might need some different specialist care. And I think there's a lot of value in, in really encouraging the community and haemophilia centers who are treating people, aging people who need to go through certain procedures, get it published, get a case study. We need to build up that evidence base. And, you know, perhaps aging as a topic isn't as sexy and fancy as looking at gene therapy or novel treatments or but in gene therapy, everyone's suddenly talking about the hepatologist. Let's get the hepatologists involved. Let's speak to them more. And, you know, why, why can't that be done in the aging population as well? Involving the geriatricians, getting people to publish their work and talk about it, present it at conferences, whatever it may be. We just need to elevate that conversation. So I'm surprised that there's not a, an adult men track at the EHC meetings, or do you have a UK? Does the UK hemophilia community have their own meeting? within the country? In recent years, there has been an aging meeting. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think it shows w within the last couple of years, people are starting to realize, oh, wait, we need to do something specific to aging. But again, it's about reaching that patient population as well and trying to get people involved. And I think throwing it back to the healthcare side as well, we need people to be talking more about how they're managing these people. And it's, I think it's very easy for people to end up in their own sort of clinical center bubble and they're just, we're treating our patients. They need to go through this and it's hard to go, okay, actually, what can we do to kind of bring this knowledge to the wider audience? But I think it, it definitely needs to be done. Um, it seems like you have the ear. It seems like HemeNet may want to have in your portfolio of subheadings underneath your umbrella there. Maybe you need to have a stream of stuff on aging and let, let Will talk about case studies that he could bring up. But there's, there is some stuff out there anyway. But I think you, you could move the needle in that respect, Luke. Yeah, I think, Bradley, you make an excellent point because often as a community, because we're so small a number, it's hard to get big data on aging or otherwise. And actually, one of our strengths has always been telling those powerful stories that show what really is going on in the community. And I think you're right, Luke, to, to say what you said. There's a big need to get together a portfolio of aging with bleeding disorder stories that we can show. Because I think case studies get, they're very good for provoking conversation, aren't they? They're very good for getting people talking about what's important. So I think whilst we're waiting for these big data sets and things to come through, they are a really powerful way of elevating the profile. It was interesting you mentioned a chap who'd had a bypass and it's a really good example of an area that has moved forward. So they kind of give that a bit of context. If somebody has a heart attack, they have a blocked coronary artery, a bit of muscle in the heart isn't getting blood, it's dying. That's what a heart attack is. And you've really two options there. You can either do a bypass, put a new vein in to get the blood flowing around the blocked artery, or you can put a stent in. But if you have a stent, you have to take aspirin, you have to take blood thinners, even though it's only a tiny dose. And for a long time, if you were a hemophiliac who had a heart attack, you had to have a bypass, a massive operation. They cut open your sternum, they open your chest, 
they take arteries or veins out of your legs or out of your chest and they put a bypass in. And it's only really in the last five or 10 years we've realized actually we can just give people a little bit of aspirin and a stent, which is a heck of a lot less invasive. You just feed a wire up through a, uh, up through a vein or artery in the leg and you put that stent in. So that's an area that's moved along a lot. And there, there are going to be lots of things like this that, that we're still doing wrong. And we need to work out better ways forward. So it keeps bringing us back to the fact that we need more data. Big mission then, to say the least. It's safe to say things inevitably get more complicated as we get older, right? But especially in the haemophilia population, there's a lot to be think thinking about and a lot that needs to be done. I really, really appreciate you both jumping on the pod and sharing your insights. It's been really interesting to listen into. Guess just a final opportunity. I'll open up the floor to both of you. If there's any key take home message to the community you have or anything else you wanted to add before we, we close it off, then this is your moment. So I'll use my metaphor again. I think it's incumbent upon us to be our own quarterback and to make sure that we are to be aware of these subspecialties, to be aware that these comorbidities are coming and to stay on top of that. Most of us that have reached an older age already do that or else we wouldn't have made it this far. So just keep your eyes and ears open and be aware that these other things are coming and take care of yourself. Be your own quarterback. I couldn't agree more with the sentiment. Thank you again to both of my guests for joining me on this episode. It has been an absolute pleasure to dive into this topic of getting old and becoming old geezers with both of you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in as always. If you enjoyed this episode and you think someone else out there in the community would benefit from listening in, please do share it with them. Share it on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever it is you like to scream and shout about all things haemophilia and bleeding disorders. Please do consider sharing Hemecast with the community. We have plenty more podcasts planned for the future, so do make sure you're following us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And if there is a platform that we don't have Hemecast on yet that you prefer to use for your podcasts, let us know and I can make that happen. Thank you once again for tuning in. Take care and bye-bye. <laughs>